Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting episode of uh, SFP Now. Um, before we start, I just want to apologise for the sound. I've got a dodgy mic and we're going to be replacing it in a few in, in a few weeks' time, hopefully. Um, so we'll have a better sound quality. Um, but for now, we're just going to have to grin and bear it. Um, I'd like to welcome to the show Raisa, who's going to be going over some of the TV discussion with me. Um, and our guest on this show this week is uh, Brett, Brett Uren. Um, Brett Uren or Brett Uren? <laughs> no, no one quite knows how to say his name. Um, I, you know, I don't think even he not quite knows how to say it. <laughs> um, and and he's sort of like the rider and organizer of a uh, Torso Bear, which is um, it's a it's a brilliant it's a brilliant book. Raisa can test that to it because you've actually read it, haven't you? Yes, I have, and it was it was lovely. It was mm-hmm. lovely. Well, um, in the interview, Reese, we're talking about uh, Torso Bear 2, um, which um, is basically on Kickstarter right now, waiting to be, you know, wait, waiting for people to come forward and donate pledges, and and they're giving away a lot of cool stuff as well. So, and there's a lot of cool stuff going on with it, which Brett will be talking about with with me later on. Uh, but first off, um, what should we start with this week, Reese? Uh, let's let's start with A for Arrow. A, a for arrow. I thought he was going to say A for something else then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, well I'm going to start a little bit because I've actually been quite liking the series of Arrow and the whole thing with Race or Goo this season. But I've actually read quite a lot of negativity of it on, on it online from a lot of people think, that don't think it's I as think, good as it was last I year. I think the problems, are, um, the problems are structural. The, um, the flashbacks dragged it down. They, they didn't need to tell the flashback story quite the way they did. Mm. Yeah, I think I think what they should have done, maybe, thinking about it, is maybe just done a couple of flashback episodes where mm-hmm. they where they tell the story in in, in you know over say one or two episodes that they have dotted throughout the season, mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of like um, having the flashbacks within the main crux of the story. Um, because it, it does slow things down. It even slowed things down, really, with the, with the origin story of him being on the island for two years. Yeah, yeah. But, and the, the other advantage to it is if they had had flashback-heavy episodes, they could have actually given Mark Singer screen time as Shreve instead of just sort of shoehorning him in at the very last minute. <laughs> yeah, but... You know, I've, I've, I've quite enjoyed it, um, and I was kind of uh, I was kind of a little surprised at the twist 
um, with 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 the uh, Bangak Archer. Oh, which t- the where, where he's working with him? Yeah, we we know that he's working with him, and we knew that he was working with him. But you know, I was quite surprised that you know because we've had I don't know whether you, how far you guys are ahead, but from from what we've seen is um, Oliver is now Al Sahim. Yes. Yes. And, and and I think what you're talking about is his his betrayal of of Oliver and outing him to uh, to Rachel Gold. Uh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, oh. we kind of knew he was working with him before until Oliver was captured. And when Oliver was captured and was, you know, indoctrinated into the league as out to him, I, I kind of assumed that, you know, sort of like um, the Black Archer had, had sort of like been and gone, but, you know, you know that, 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 you know he, he'd gone back to his own life and, and, and whatnot. But it can It turns out that he, you know he was actually working with Ongi all that time before he actually betrayed him. Yes. Yes. And you know that, that kind of you know sort of like surprised me a little bit. It it did, and I think um, they meant it to surprise you because they they want that to fuel the conflict with Team Arrow now with, with you know how could you work with him and all of that stuff. Um, I'm 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 up to minds um, on, on on a dramatic level. It's it's great to watch these actors, you know, have that have that material to play off of. Um, but at the narrative level, stringing out this sense of betrayal uh, kind of drags it down. I've, but then that goes back to the the issue of soap opera pacing, mm-hmm. um, which has been which has been the bugaboo this season in particular. Um, this this season has felt like the soap opera version of itself. Yeah, and, and did on your sister really have to go after Roy? Again, it's a CW show, so yes. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought that sucked. You know, yeah, well... It just would have been better if Roy had returned on his own accord once things had settled down. Again, like I said, it's a CW show. There, there are mandated soap tropes that mm-hmm. um, have felt even more heavy-handed than they were in seasons one and two. Um, this this is just, it's just weird. Yeah. Well, you know, at least uh, at least we have uh, have the flash, which is which has been anything but a soap. Yeah, although they still had them, they still had triangles, you know, with with Eddie and and um, and and and, um, and Barry and Iris. Although that's kind of from the comics a little bit, so it's not as egregious, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, you do know that if 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 CW is actually doing a Marvel show, um, a, a Marvel comic would actually suit their mandate of having soap tropes better than a DC comic. It probably would, you know, which is which is why it it, it feels artificial because it really does feel artificial. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. That brilliant scene where Felicity Smoke confronts Ray Shogul. Dramatically, that was awesome, and it summed up both characters perfectly. It's actually one of my favorite scenes in terms of in terms of performance. But you are left sort of asking the question: Why is Rachel Gould even bothering to concern himself with Felicity's love life? The only reason for that is because it airs on the CW. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that that entire scene would not have played out except that it happens to air on CW. Fortunately, it was a really good scene uh, that spoke to both characters, but it doesn't change the fact that structurally it is sort of through bar. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the kind of the whole Felicity well, character within within the confines of Arrow is kind of through bar. Because let's see, you know, she's um, she's had liaisons with, with Ollie, she's had liaisons with, uh, with is it Ray? Ray. Yeah. And and who else did she had liaisons with? She had liaisons with somebody else as well. She she had a near liaison with Barry, but they put the kibosh on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's just sort of like um, she's kind of like the ultimate she's like the ultimate uh, CW superhero fan girl. Yeah. She's 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 the the resident bicycle. Um. It's not. <laughs> it's, it's not cool. <laughs> the resident bicycle. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, I'm going to use that. She, she is, and it's not cool. And a, and a lot of fans have complained about it. I mean, I, I, I don't mind these characters being in relationships. I mean, if you're going to show them in relationships to, you know, show that aspect of the human experience in the context of your overall narrative, knock yourselves out. But to devote entire plot lines to it on, like, three different shows mm-hmm. is, is pathetic. It, it is. Um, it's just sort of like it, it kind of grates. Um, um, but while we're on the subject of sort of like uh, talking about soaps, kind of feels like we're talking about soaps now. <laughs> um... We, I've just sort of like recently caught up with a Flash, and obviously by the time this show airs, you guys will have seen one more episode of Flash, and mm-hmm. you'll be ahead of us again. But I've just seen the episode Grodd. It was brilliant for the most part overall. Um, two aspects: the Grodd storyline and the non and the non Grodd storyline. Let's deal with Grodd first. Considering that they are a CW show, which is a broadcast network here in the states, not even basic cable, but broadcast. Um, and that they're on a and they're on a broadcast network budget on an already special effects heavy show. Grodd was awesome. Yeah, he was. Uh, and I, I kind of like the uh, I like the storyline. I like the way they was they they use the uh, general. Yes. Within the Clancy, Clancy Brown, gotta love him. Yeah. And it's it set something up for future episodes rather wonderfully, I think. And um, I also quite enjoyed. You know, now that we're getting to see um, Wells, Harrison Wells, our, yes. our fawn, um, in full-blown evil guy mode. It's, like, it's, it's awesome. And I'll say this. Um, well, I really appreciate the twist of Thawne being Wells. Um, my one issue with it is I've, I've grown so attached to Tom Cavanaugh as Harrison Wells that I'm afraid we're going to lose him next season. I can't... It's like, how can... How can they keep him around? I can't see them. I can't see them killing him off because once you kill the Reverse Flash, you got no Flash. But they can always use original Reverse Flash played by Matt Lesher. They don't need Kavanaugh anymore. Mm, not necessarily. I mean, you know, the the the, uh, the transformation from the from the original Fawn into Harrison Wells looked pretty. Brutal, to be honest. So I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling they might just. It might just be easier for them to keep Harrison Wells. At least for now, anyway. You know? Yeah. Um. I mean, Tom Cavanaugh's a, a wonderful actor. I've seen him in a lot of different stuff. Um. I've seen him in a. He was in Yogi Bear, the feature mm-hmm. version of Yogi Bear, um, which is probably not necessarily his great high point. 
Um, but you know, he was good in that as the um, as as the um, you know as the as the as a park keeper. Um, but I, I've also seen him in quite a few TV movies, and you know, he's he's quite a talented actor. Yes, he is. He is, and I and 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 the, and the great thing about the twist is that once you once you're aware of the twist, once you understand what you're actually watching, you become aware of just how good an actor he really is because he's been playing so many levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal at a, at a performance level to just contemplate what he's actually accomplished here. Yeah, he, he's done amazing work on, on, on the show, uh, that's for sure. Um, now now for the not-so-good part of the episode, the, uh, the, the soapy stuff with... Uh, oh, God, what, what's, what's the name now? With Iris. Yes. Now here's the thing. There are two. There are two levels here. As a character, Iris was was very much entitled to be angry for being kept in the dark. Okay. But for the entire bloody episode. But for the entire episode, yeah. And she, and as righteous as her anger was, as far as it goes, somewhere between intense and execution, the delivery just makes made, made her come off as. A prissy princess. Mm, and, you know, I, I, I'd actually, uh, I'd actually sort of be a bit more brutal than that, and uh, she came off like a spoiled rich bitch. Yeah. yeah. You know, I thought I, I was, I thought I was actually watching Paris Hilton. Yeah, I just, I don't, I, I don't know what it is because I, because looking at fan reaction, it's split down the middle. You've got about, about half of the fans see her the way we see her, and about half of the fans think that she's empowered and wonderful, and. Mm. I don't know where the gulf is or why the gulf is, but for those of us who are not seeing empowered and wonderful, that love story is just not working. I think the fans that see an empowered and wonderful are probably twelve-year-old girls, mm. or sort of like very, very hardy, um, undersexed fourteen-year-old boys. <laughs> you know, um, which is which is probably the demographic her character's aimed at. Mm. But you know, she she just sort of like. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. She's quite quite a good actress, and she's a she's she's a very uh, she's she's a very 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 beautiful woman that plays a part. But I think the writing for her character um, in this episode was was pretty poor. You know, they 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 should have basically just had right. She's angry at Barry. Have a go off for for an episode maybe, and and just focus on the triumvirate and come back to her at a later point. I think devoting over half an episode, her anger and indignation um, against Barry for keeping keeping it all a secret. You know, it just it just saw like uh, it was just it just threw Ned Ned weight on the entire episode. It did, and I think, and again, it's a soap trope thing because that's how soaps work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have one or two characters who are kept out of the loop on whatever the big secret in the plot is for an extended period of time. Then they find out, then they blow up, and the blowing up plays out over an extended period of time, and then everything just drags. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, you know, I've been watching Nashville, which is a soap, and that's a much better soap than The Flash. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's kind of like a guilty pleasure <laughs> for me, that one. Um, but, you know, back, back onto The Flash, it was just sort of like... Uh, I just, I just think that that was a case of a of a really 
poor yet executed um, episode in terms of in terms of her, her character development. Yeah, but then we have to keep in mind the golf is there because you got just as many fans who are perfectly happy with what aired. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I, I, you know, we're just gonna have to, gonna have to lump it because I, I don't think I don't think we're the demographic they're listening to. Aye. Well, moving on to something that, um, you know, is arguably also quite soapy, um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. Um, I don't know, I've, I've, been in, I've been in two minds about this whole, the real S.H.I.E.L.D. thing. Mm. You know, in a way I'm kind of thinking, is this just an excuse to bring J- Edward James Olmos into the show? Before I answer that, how far are you? Um... I seen the episode last week where um, Sky she's met her mother. Her mother has trained her, and she's had lunch. She's had dinner with her mother and her father, and the other guy in the camp has found out. Okay, okay, yes. then you're behind. Yeah, we're um, quite, quite a bit behind on Agents of Shield, unfortunately. Yeah, um, Edward James almost his character, his his arc is resolved in a way that you wouldn't think. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be going into the finale tonight, two-hour finale, and Edward James almost his character is removed relative to events by the finale. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, it turns out that he's actually Thanos in a human no, being. <laughs> no, no. Um, it, it turns out that that Sky's mom is actually Thanos, as it were. Oh my God, that doesn't surprise me as well because uh, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, the actress that plays her, and I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Dishan Dishan Lachman. She's one of the the Dollhouse alums, one of Whedon's mm. go-to's. She was yeah. also in. She was also in the Australian soap Neighbours for about, mm. for about six months <laughs> um, before before moving to the states. Um, you know, so she's had a similar route to um, NA that Chris Hem- Hemsworth has, and quite a few mm. of the other actors <laughs> that, that are making big names. But it doesn't surprise me in a way, in a sense, because Dishan Lockman, she always kind of plays these sort of characters. Yeah, and I and I had a feeling when they first introduced her uh, early on uh, in 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 season in season one that that she was going to play a larger role than than initially anticipated because they wouldn't bring Dishan Lockman on for nothing, you know, for for a glorified cameo, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, it turns into more than that. And the this, this season finale is about how it's way more than that. And she's, she's going she's gonna to be front and center in the two-hour finale. So it's going to get really, really good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been good. It's kept me interested. It's certainly been... It's been a better season for me this season than, than, than the first season was. Oh, God, yes. As well, it's, it's probably because they, they've got their feet under them. Although I still say that part of the problem is they're so tied to the cinematic universe that they have to wait for the plot twist of the cinematic universe before they can move forward, and, and it's still affecting their pacing somewhat. Yeah, but I think, just, not as, just not as badly. I think this year um, they, they've gotten away with it a little bit more because they pulled it pulled it off last year with Captain America Winter Soldier, and and this year you know, the, the, the loyal fans that, that, that are really, really into it have kind of figured, oh, well, we'll just go along with this anyway and just see how it ties in. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I've, I've, really, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I, I've quite, you know, I've quite enjoyed the fact that the, 
I've kind of enjoyed the fact that we've got the real shield and, and Coulson's shield in a way. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's setting up civil war, basically. Well, pretty much it pretty much is, I guess. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just wondering if we'll see some more set up for civil war in Ant-Man, given that it's now been revealed that Ant-Man's going to be in civil war. Yes, yeah, I, I imagine. So it's like, um, I, I don't enjoy internal strife and conspiracy-driven storylines like these are generally, so it's on that level. It's been a little bit boring for me, but the but the interpersonal stuff and the character beats have been interesting enough for me to, you know, for me to power through it. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking forward to Civil War. It's, it's not where I live narratively. I've quite enjoyed the uh, I've quite enjoyed Sky's journey in this in this season. Um, yeah. You know, quite I quite enjoyed the fact that she get she's got to meet her mother. Um, even though. The rug is going to be pulled from completely from under her in regards to uh, the person that she believes her mother to be, and yeah. the person that her mother is going to be revealed to be. Well, it's not literal. It's, she's she's basically Ji Yang. That's her mother's name. Is basically she was so traumatized by being um, basically vivisected by Whitehall that it did permanent damage. Mm-hmm. That she's been able to mask. Um, but it's basically a raging case of PTSD that's basically going to impact everyone around her in a very bad way. Wow. Um, and, yeah, well, um, I've, I've just heard, it's just been announced recently that the uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. series, the spin-off series, is no longer a go-ahead. Go, go and um, I, as I was looking in here, I, I found an article, um, but I've I, 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 I misplaced it now, but I found an article uh, which was explaining why they chose not to go off, go go on on with the spin-off series. That's because they renewed Agent Carter, which I actually regard as a better choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I was hoping they would renew Agent Carter. I was, I was, I was nearly convinced they wouldn't. So it was, a, it was a, actually a pleasant surprise when they did. So so was I because it wasn't exactly a, a huge rating success for them. Yeah. I guess the fan loyalty to it as kind of like um, you know. Maybe the fact that it's got a loyal fan base, A, B, C, have figured, oh, well, it's got a loyal fan base. Um, if, if we if we um, lose so much money in, in, in terms of the actual TV series, perhaps we can make it up in merchandising. Mm-hmm. And according to what I've read, uh, Peggy's going to be moving to Los Angeles in season two. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that, sounds, that sounds like they're setting it up for S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that, that'd be a... That that'd be fun to see. It also be fun to see a period in Los Angeles as well. Yes, that that'll be cool. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Um. So, anything else we should um we we should discuss? No, I think I think we covered it. Okay. Well, I've got one bit of news um that, that I wanted to like uh, touch on. I've just um I've just discovered something that um I don't know whether you 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 um even remember the film, it was made in 1980, it's a British film, it's a fantasy, it's a fantasy film, it starred John Terry and Jack Pangance was a bad guy, and it was called Heart for Slayer. Okay, I think I missed that one. Yeah, well there, there, there's actually, a, there's apparently a sequel in development called Heart for Hunter. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy because it's like, uh, you know, we're talking, you know, Heart of the Snake came out in 1980. Wow. So it's like 35 years later. Yeah, I've, 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 seen, I've seen most of the 
the 80s sci-fi and fantasy stuff, but I, I can honestly say I've missed that one. Mm. Well, I, I'll, um, I'll send you a trailer for it after, after, the, after we sort of finish here. But I'm quite excited about it because it's a guilty pleasure. It's, um, it's kind of cheesy. Mm. Um, back then it may not have been so cheesy, but it was, it was made on a very, very tight budget sort of thing. And, and it's, the soundtrack kind of had, had the feel of a spaghetti western to it. Mm. Um, but it was basically um, British and I don't, I don't think it did as good as Crow. Mm, Crow, Crow I enjoyed. I, I saw that one um, several years ago. Yeah, well Crow was, actually, Crow was actually quite a big hit in terms of, uh, of, of, of British fantasy cinema, whereas uh, Heart of the Snake is probably its poor, poor relation. You know, it's still quite, quite, quite a fun movie. Um, it's got a very simple story of of good versus evil. It's it's not it's not full of the complexities of Game of Thrones, but it does have quite a, you know you know quite quite a few you know things in common with Game of Thrones in in the fact that um, you know you'd think all the core characters are safe when in fact they're not because about three of them die near the end of the movie so um it's quite dark in that sense um but there's not not really any nudity in it or or, or um or, or any of those sort of like adult themes but it was it was it was quite a fun movie cool. uh, so you know so i'm quite i'm quite excited about the fact that 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 that, that there is a they're, they're actually looking at the poss- possibility of doing a sequel of sorts um, I'm not sure how 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 well it will work out. It could could be total crap, <laughs> or, or or it could 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 work out pretty well. Um, you you don't really know how these things are going to work out, but you know it's it's just a story I found and I thought I'd give it a mention. Okay, well now it's time for our interview with Brett Uren, um, who is the uh, mind behind Tosso Bear. And you know he's gonna be talking about the uh, the second anthology book of stories that he he's working on, um, which is currently be it's currently on Kickstarter. Um, so you know if you if you like what you hear in this interview, I encourage you all to uh, go to Kickstarter and make a pledge. Um, and I can say this: you won't be disappointed. <laughs> So now it's on to the interview with Brett and Uren. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed. You just remember what your past said. Boy, you got a friend in me. Yeah, you got a I'd like to welcome to the show uh, Brett, Brett Uran. Is, is it Uran or Uran or Uran? Um, people have come up with all sorts of pronunciations over the years. We usually go for Uran, but, um, you know, whatever fits you. Okay, we'll go with Brett Uran, which is what everyone goes with, I guess. No. It's, a, it's a little bit like side de tan. 
that, 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 um, that, that, that other famous uh, comic book writer out of the UK. Uh, to be honest, he's got he's got the cooler name that just sort of rolls off the tongue, no matter how you pronounce it. I think. True, true, and he's also yeah. got this crazy ability where is he, he just sort of like holds his hand up in the air in sort of a very Darth Vader-esque sort of manner and people just <laughs> choke on their own vomits. <laughs> Have you not seen him do that yet? No, he hasn't performed that on me yet, um, so I'm not sure whether I've done something right or something wrong to miss that so far. <laughs> okay, well, um, we're on here really to talk about uh, Tarso Bear. Um, but beforehand, um, let's get a bit of background. How did you get into comics? So, um, you know, I know that you've uh, had, you've done quite quite a few comic books before you started Tarso Bear last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really started um, out in comics uh, just being a fan, uh, just being a fan as a kid, uh, writing and drawing my own um, comics and video games, little strip things. I used to be obsessed with uh, Jim Davis and uh, Bill Weston for a good while and uh, do whatever a kid does and tries to emulate their styles to a certain extent. And then went through the teen angst phase with um, James O'Barr, The Crow, that sort of thing. Um, but seriously, getting into it, it wasn't until... Um, I'll tell you exactly what I was doing. It was about the early 2000s and I was uh, doing quite a, uh, a rubbish job uh, trying to sell mobile phone packages, uh, primarily to phone lists of old ladies, that sort of thing. And I wasn't doing particularly well at it, but one of the other guys um, caught me sort of doing a poster for a local band and said, "Ah, oh, I used to draw. I used to love drawing, but then I had like a kid and a family, and uh, you know, sort of lost touch out of it. And I thought to myself." Man, you sounded so depressed in that moment. I, there's no way I'm going to give it up now. I'm not going to end up sounding as sort of like hollowed out as that guy. As much as I hope, you know, he came back to it later on and decided, you, just, you know, I've got to do something with it. And so I uh, just started uh, drawing the, the first stories that would become Kazimu, which is sort of a, uh, a graphic novel I did that was relegated to these sands of time now, but um, it was the sort of first great experiment, really. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how, how did the Tarso Bear come out of all of that? Because um, it's so like um, it's kind of like um, an, um, a film, an old, an old, an old-fashioned gumshoe detective, but a teddy bear. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of a funny one, really. After trying to do sort of African sci-fi horror philosophical work and, you know, throw everything into the mix with Kazimu and then with a little local sort of Cthulian sitcom, The Veil. Mm -hmm. um, they've both gone well in some of their ways but haven't been picked up with others, you know, some uh, some have lashed out with some fairly harsh criticism, some of which was totally deserved. So it was really a reaction to that to try and find some way of um, hitting not more populist kind of field that to rather than making things more complicated for myself all the time try and find, uh, find something that was more direct uh, more simplistic uh, and actually just well, on an adult night out with some friends you know bashing ideas around as you do over a beer mat um, it came up with the idea of okay well how can you how far and hard can you possibly take something that's really cute like say the, the, the Teddy Ruxby uh, cartoon 
Uh, so Teddy, you know, Teddy Ruxpin was a toy back in the 80s with the, the tape in his chest. Mm-hmm. For, you know, anybody who doesn't remember that particular toy. Yeah, I think I think he was around at the same time as Cabbage Patch Dolls were introduced. Exactly, Cabbage Patch Dolls. And uh, actually a lot of the, the characters in, in Talks of Bear seem to be from that either that vintage era or within that sort of 80s era of toys. I think that was a big one for sort of like cartoon tie-ins really, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. the, the, the first venture out of that. So how fast and hard could you take that sort of thing without ever getting to the point where you would have to stick a mature sticker on it? So no blood, no gore, no sexual references, anything like that, but still make it harrowing. And the things like Harry Potter, um, I'm amazed by how mean uh, and uh, really quite dark J.K. Rowling could take that and still make it readable for kids. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, 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 a chance to try and do that with two well-trod uh, genres, you know, both as kind of like kids' storybook, cutesy toy tie-in stuff, and uh, the, the noir genre, um, really under people like Ed Brubaker, has uh, come under such a resurgence that it, you can almost too easily fall into doing just that directly now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, it's like uh, Marvel did it a few years back with, uh, mm. with X-Men and Spider-Men. They did X-Men Noir and, and Spider-Man Noir. Yeah, it's almost like from a grab bag of various things, like you can do steampunk or you can do noir or you can do anything else. So not to do you know their work down, it's all been quite impressive stuff. But if you can do Marvel noir and Batman noir, it's almost like a, an extra flavour, a topping you can put on something mm. on top. Uh, whereas we wanted to really get in there, or I initially wanted to really get under the skin of it and, uh, you know, build the, the, the theme in from the start. So the theme was that, uh, you have this sort of, he starts off as a happy toy, uh, as you would see in any of those cartoons, and it's a delightful game children's story world. Um, but they you know, gradually have the noir, the real world peel back and sort of crash down in on him. Um, so at the point we're at at the moment, the, the noir thing is very much in evidence, but um, I want it to remain, rather than it just being a topping, have it very much in evidence as part of the structure of the whole thing, I think. Mm. Well, you know, you took Tarso Bear and um, you took it on Kickstarter last year, um, so I actually donated to that campaign, and I've donated to the current one too. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but the... Um, you know, you took it on Kickstarter and you, you basically had this idea last year, which you've continued this year, of, of getting a lot of other writers and creators involved. Um, what made you, made you think that would work when you, when, when you did that? Because that's sort of like, um, I can imagine something like that, you know, either working, you know, superbly well, which it did for you last year, or falling from that on its ass. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a gamble, uh, especially initially as well. Um, Partly it was out of necessity in that I had the, the idea to do it. Um, the, the initial first uh, eight-page you know, short story of Torsa there ran in a Norwegian digital-only anthology called Ultra. And uh, it, it picked out primarily because when that, vo- that volume of their you know, um, short got reviewed, it was the best reviewed thing that I'd ever had, you know, just by accident and having a laugh, uh, stumbled upon this thing that worked. Uh, but I had a 
uh, a new daughter by that point. She was a very small baby, I and mean, she's two and a half now. But uh, you know, back in uh, the end of 2013, she was very much smaller. Uh, I was just changing jobs, so there was absolutely no way I was going to be able to do uh, a graphic novel on my own. Um, and I think that was about the sort of time that the very um, beginnings um, of imaginary drugs, which has now been picked up by IDW, was starting to be shaken around on the uh, indie creator communities. And uh, Fubar has been having uh, a good run of it. The zombie anthology is, uh, well, you know, they had that $90,000 Kickstarter um, a year and a bit ago. Mm-hmm which was just, you know, astounding. So the model obviously worked to an extent. I thought, well, I enjoy, it almost seems thematically appropriate that if you're going to base something partly on cartoon tie-in toys, then maybe you could operate it almost like a cartoon show's writer room, where, uh, you know, people can go off and write their own episodes, and uh, the, the thing hopefully could still hang together the only way to get it to hang together, I think, was to establish in rules first, not just with that uh, short story, but uh, to actually write a Bible. So there was a, a, a multi-page document laying out some of the rules, like the money had to be buttons, and there were certain things that you could do. Uh, the toys couldn't bleed. Uh, there were only certain types of um, drugs they could take, or like molasses, or you know, foods that they could eat out there. So you established the world and then let them play within the rules or bend them slightly and see what came out of it. Mm-hmm. So basically the toys couldn't believe, but, you know, if they happen to have red stuffing inside... I mean, that would, that would technically work. Uh, if it was a, a little, you know, a old Hessian doll, maybe it'd be stuffed with straw or sand or something, you know. Yeah. In fact, we, in the new book, we go into those sort of things of an exploration of what is it exactly in this world that makes a toy alive? Uh, you know, what's the, the point of animation or uh, death? at this point, do you remove the stuffing? Because there is uh, one story by a new writer that we took on called Eddie Norton, which is called uh, A Tale of Woe on D-Fluff Row. And the whole new book is set in a, uh, well, most of it is set in a toy prison called The Corner. And uh, I don't think it's spoilers to say that, you know, given the title, there is a a D-Fluff Row, uh, there is a death row for toys in this prison. And what that involves in the main character's case is having a hoover nozzle stuck into him and all his fluff sucked out. The story, the meat of the story is all about what you, what happened to him to get to that point. But by sucking the fluff out and having a deflated teddy, he has technically been executed. So uh, the rules around it are kind of convoluted and interesting. I mean, it's different because there are so many different types of toys as well. Mm. Yeah, I remember when you I remember when you did the Kickstarter of Hamp campaign last year. Um, it was it was Nick Wilkinson, you know, size a uh, better half, um, who saw like uh, she did a big mail out. She goes, Ian, Ian, you got to interview Brett. <laughs> I, go, I mean, okay. she's a good sort, Nick, and she really was massively, massively instrumental in the success uh, of the last one. Uh, never be able to think uh, thank her enough her being such a massive champion of the last book. I dare say it was her um, uh, writing Kieran's, writer Kieran Squires and uh, Janos uh, Honkerman 
who helped out with some of the uh, marketing uh, stuff, as did Nick. Uh, that's the only reason it came out at all. Um, I'd like to say in the last round of interviews that it was uh, it worked on so many levels because it has as little to do with me as possible, and I think that's true. It's a total team effort through and through. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I liked about the whole idea about it was um, it was kind of like... Uh, and this is what attracted me to it and what made me want to donate um, last time round was I remember when I was a kid I'd wake up on Christmas morning and you see these crazy animated films where the toys come alive and, and um, for some reason they've got to save Christmas <laughs> and, and oh yeah no, I know what you, do, you mean and they always have to see the weird things on like the, is it the Brave Little Toaster yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, you're totally right. There's always some little film. Uh, the idea that toys could be animated, uh, it sort of comes round again and again, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, you've got Toy Story, and, you know, that's the, almost the epitome of that. And if anything, we're trying to sort of, like, subvert and satirise that kind of thing. But uh, I think the reason that so many of the writers and artists and people like Nick got so passionate about it is because... A lot of us, of our sort of like group of generations, you know, close together, were sort of brought up with that sort of thing. So all of the themes and content of Torso Bear seem to be sort of directly plugged into a lot of our childhood memories. Mm-hmm. And I think that reflects in sales as well, if only because at cons, kids have been interested and they have been picking it up. But it's more often the parents that are picking up and reading it. It's, it's more directly connected to their experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it, it's a fun one, though, because oh, like, I remember those sort of cartoons and... Uh, and I still wake up here you know, on a Christmas morning expecting to get these great cartoons. You don't get them anymore. No, you don't. You don't. I mean, it's a, I'm not sure if it's a, a nostalgia thing or not, but you don't seem to see any of those, sort of like, you know, Warner Brothers or MGM, you know, uh, Tom and Jerry short cartoons like you used to as well. Yeah, the think... whole era of the animated Christmas special and the short seems to have gone uh, by the wayside. It's a very different... It's, it's strange because on like um, Tom and Je- I think the Tom and Jerry animated stuff and the Road Runner and stuff like that they stopped showing them on mainstream because they're considered to be too violent and politically incorrect and I think that's mm. why they've stopped um, them on the whole. But I, th- I think you can you can still get access to them somewhere. I mean, I I, I for example I've got a I've got a copy on DVD of a Flintstones Christmas Carol. <laughs> Really? I didn't even know that was a thing. It was correct. It was made. It was made back in two thousand two. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and um, oh my gosh. And, and basically, in it, Fred Flintstone's uh, playing Scrooge in the Christmas play. <laughs> so he's been typecast again. Um, but you know, I, I, um, I, there's always access to them somehow. I mean, you can access them through Amazon. I mean, you can get Yogi Bear's first Christmas on Amazon and some of the old, <laughs> some of the old stuff. So um, every Christmas, I have a run around round on Amazon and um, and get my fill of uh, cartoons that way because you know, so, so obviously Christmas is the time where you feel really nostalgic. Oh yeah, you totally do. And yeah. You're sort of searching for the things that made you warm and fuzzy, mm-hmm. you know, way back then when you, you didn't have anything to worry about. So yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you on that one. So. I'm definitely going to try Amazon after that. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's, there's loads of stuff on Amazon. Um, 
in, there's even a film with Jimmy Durante on Amazon. <laughs> Really? A Christmas film with Jimmy Durante. Oh, my God. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me what people will get stuck in. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that, that's someone that should be brought back in comics. Someone should do... some. some someone should actually get permission from, from, from Jimmy Durante's... Uh, you know, whoever holds a license to his films and, and his namesake and just do a comic based on Jimmy Durante. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Who's doing a lot of licensed properties at the moment? We're, we're talking IDW, really, aren't we? Um, not Boom so much, but I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure if someone tapped up IDW's door and goes, hey, come on, give it a go, someone someone will buy this. I think, I, I think they'd give it a crack. I think Boom do a little bit as well, still. They do Planet of the Apes still. Because they, yeah. they, they recently did Star Trek versus Planet of the Apes, which was terrible. <laughs> oh, no, I remember that because uh, my friend uh, Matt Rook, who draws Apes and Capes, uh, did a sketch cover of that, and I had to look through the yeah, the, the content was awful, but his sketch cover was awesome, so I think it sold on the strength of that illustration alone. I don't think anyone was buying it to read it. The artwork was brilliant throughout, I mean, I've got all five issues, and the artwork was strong throughout. I, um, I, I was buying it, I was reading it, and I thought, when's something gonna happen? <laughs> I think it's, it's all from the problem with those mashed togethers is uh, unless you've got something like Alien versus Predator, like not see the original run that was just a really strong idea, you know, of, of its own to begin with, uh, then yeah, I think a lot of these licensed mashups tend to struggle. It's like licensed video games, unless someone has a really good, strong concept to begin with and they're not just told by a publisher, we need this kind of content, then yeah, you are going to struggle. Um, can you ever see a day where Tarso Bear gets made into a video game or an animated TV show or something? <laughs> you know, and that, quite fun. Well, the, the kind of way we work it with the, the writers' arrangement is that it's like um, the writers run a TV show in that we all contribute ideas. Um, even the artists, to some extent, with the first one, uh, Carlos Zamudio uh, came up with the idea of the stars at night coming down on strings like a child's mobile, um, which was so. Elegant. It was just there on a the panel. He never mentioned it, but as soon as I saw it, it was perfect, you know. Um, so I, I think a cartoon show, we've kind of already done that sort of structure. Um, as for uh, movies, I, I'm not entirely sure that it, you know, enough of it has been done already to where it may not stand out as, uh, as strongly as it could. As I've, I've always wanted to do a video game. I've been thinking about designing video games since I was a small boy but uh, I'm not entirely sure how well it would work out I mean, you think sort of a wolf among us multi-choice um, sort of point and click detective story yeah I, think I can't that... imagine it being uh, much more of an action game it would have to be thing of way way more narrative driven I think yeah I think I think um, I think you got it in, in a nutshell there I think it probably would work best Wolf Among Us in that sort of style from from who is it now Telltale Games that do that? Yeah, Telltale. Did they used to be Psychosis? I can't remember. I don't know. I don't know where they came from. They just came out of nowhere a few years ago with Back to mm. the Future and um, seemed to take off. Yeah, I mean, inevitably most of those developers, um, I think you find, or ge- you find generally with these companies like Take Two evolving into as it was it rocks. Yeah, um, something like that. Quite a lot of these developers have had a long history, uh, you know, um, a career 
in game development and uh, you know they might have been something else and renamed themselves or a group of them had splintered off and made something else so I'm not sure but I think Telltale have been kind of um, knocking around as something else for quite some time which is probably why they came out the gate with such a good strong formula I mean the other thing they make is uh, kind of in that sort of uh, dialogue driven you know um, click adventure sort of style but because it has been something that this generation of gamers hadn't had before, really, only ours had. Um, in the 90s. I think that's probably why they worked. Yeah, probably 80s and 90s, we had it all. We, we, you know, we had the, uh, you know, we had, we had all, all the, the adventures. Yeah. Uh, was it uh, Monkey Island? Yep. Um, even uh, the first, I really remember the first um, Discworld game with quite some fondness. If only because so much of it was so obtuse that you always got like the, the funny response. I can't remember if it was Tony Robertson doing the voiceover, but it was all really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to. I, I can't remember this um, this game. There was there was a game that came out where you 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 you, you were kind of an, an archaeologist, and you wound up going a bit Indiana Jones. And I can't remember okay, the name cool. of it. I can't remember the name of it. I remember playing it. I remember loving it, and then 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 it crashed. <laughs> and I got so far, and 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 the disc crashed. But you know, it's my own fault. It's just playing a pirate copy. So. All oh, right. Okay. So I used well, to have a pirate copy. Somebody with the Amiga, and somebody yeah. uh, you can tell it wasn't the official game because someone had just literally written on an old sticker on what was an obviously shot bought, you know, um, floppy disc. I think it was called Broken Sword or something. Ah, oh, no, I remember Broken Sword, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I just really, really got into it, and um, I got to about the third or fourth disc on Floppy, and it just, the entire game crashed. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I never got to finish it. <laughs> well, with uh, emulators, I mean, they've got that whole you know, list of MS-DOS games mm-hmm. that um, have been emulated that you can find on the web. I'm pretty sure there must be you know, a way of emulating Broken Sword on the machine now. Yeah, I think they should just re-release it on the, on the modern-day console. Um, Actually, yeah, I mean, they should do, because all these things have got to be out, they've got to be out of copyright by now, by surely if they're all putting them up on, you know, really quite well covered in the, the gaming media sort of emulators, I'm pretty sure that some publisher somewhere should just be able to pick up a huge pack of these things and do like a games of, you know, games of the early 90s, sort of huge compilation pack of things. Yeah. Do, do, do some from the 80s as well. I mean, um, I remember getting hours of fun, you know, Jeff Cape's Strongman. Or, oh, really? I didn't, you know, or, or Davey Thompson's Decathlon. Uh, which, you know, I think I broke about 44 joysticks and five keyboards doing that one. Oh, was that when the running, the, the, so if it was running, you had to kind of like, you know, jiggle the, the stick about? Yep. Or, you know, yep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> utterly distracting. You could get RSI so easily from those old ones. Wasn't that com- the complaint of the first Street Fighter game where you actually had to hit things that people were doing themselves in and doing it? And then they bring out the Nintendo Wii many years later, and somehow people just forgot if you physically exert yourself during the game, some people might end up in, injuring themselves. Yeah, or in the case of Nintendo Wii, which happened with me, I was playing the Indiana Jones game they released on it. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the, the controller slipped out of my hand and um, suddenly found its way at rapid speed into my groin area. Oh, 
father did something similar to that, except um, he, uh, it was a nice hot day and he left the window open. So basically, the weed controller flew out of the first story window and smashed on the page below. Yeah, it's lucky nobody was walking there at the time. Yeah, they should have. They should have come with a with a health warning. Those Nintendo Wii's. <laughs> Um, but back on Toto Bear, you got, oh, yeah, yeah, we yeah, got, yeah. we got, we got, we got stitched up coming out. Um, which, um, you've, you've got a new campaign on Kickstarter. Um, wh- wh- where the stitched up, stitched up picks up after the first one, obviously. Um, so, um, poor old Ruxby Bear, he's sort of like, he started off all innocent and now he's sort of like, um, um, being, being totally corrupted. Yeah, well, he's, he's certainly been toughened up um, because there's a sort of a, there, there, there is a free PDF sampler of the new book on the campaign. Uh, I don't think it's spoilers to say that uh, you know reading first, through those first few pages, he's he's definitely gotten to the point where Hasbro wanted him to be in the first book. He's got stealing and stuffing now. He's a bit. He's a bit tougher and warier. Um, he's certainly far more, you know, pos- possibly obsessively dedicated to his job uh, than he uh, previously was doing. You know, he's, he's dedicated to taking down any nasty criminals or, you know, serial criminals in Toyburg that he can do to the point of where other officers are wary of him because he's so intense at that point which makes it easier for them to believe when he's uh, sort of brought into Toyberg uh, Police Department and, and basically sent down for uh, cor- uh, corrupting the course of justice. Um, we won't go into too many details as to why or how that goes into it, but he does end up being um, disgraced and uh, stuck into toy prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um Given that Torso Bear's like, um, now kind of uh, hardened up, um, is there like another character coming into play that's kind of like, like Torso Bear was in the previous in the previous series? Um, it would be interesting if we could do that track of a more uh, innocent character, but I think the the world as it stands at the moment. Um, the, the main through thread of it doesn't have that in it. It's following Ruxby's track as far as it can go. There's an aside where we uh, look in on uh, Ruxby's son, Wellington, and uh, Wellington there, and quite how this wide-eyed little kid is taking in the locale he's ended up as. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll look into that a little bit, but it's, it's more to give a sort of context and flavour for what... Um, how far you know, Ruxby's come at that point. Okay. Well, um, at the last, on the last Kickstarter, you had quite a few goodies um, for the different levels of, uh, of pledges. Uh, what, what can you tell us about you know, some of the goodies that you're actually giving away to, to people that pledge to, to, the, um, you know, to the cars this time around? Because, you know, well, I was reading down, you, looks like you've got some pretty cool stuff going on, so... Well, thank you. Uh, well, we try to keep it as interactive as possible. Um, so, you know, a- anybody who wants to get involved with the campaign can get something out of it. So, your basic uh, digital pledge is £5. You can get the book for that uh, via PDF or, um, uh, you know, other comic reader format. Um, you get to about, because it's a larger book, uh, there's significantly more stories than the last one in it. It's a, you know, a much bigger volume. Um, the, the print uh, starts at 
uh, £25, including shipping, for mm-hmm. the, the, the print book. Uh, but aside from that, uh, people can get something even for just um, referring a friend to the, the, the campaign. So if someone comes and pledges um, uh, at the book level and you've referred to them that, they can tell me your name and I can send you uh, an art print and a sketch for that. So um, there's also a, a daily sketch to be won by any, any one pledger in a day is entered into a draw to win a sketch from me or uh, you know one other artist like um, Dave Windet or uh, I believe Kieran Squires is going to put up some of his art for it as well. Cool. So uh, no matter how you get involved at any level, you can win some free art or a poster print. Uh, and then going up the scale of that, and um, once you start um, uh, pledging, you know, further up the amounts, you can get uh, hand-painted canvases by myself. You can get uh, Mike Motts, the American children's book illustrator, has offered a hundred pounds to personalise uh, a movie poster. Uh, wow! Yeah, so he will stick your face, illustrated in his style on, I believe, it's the Lawman character on the Law Above poster he's done for Pete Rogers' story, which is all about the guards of the toy prison. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like some really cool stuff. I mean, I, I pledged 25 quid this time because I want a book. <laughs> you know. Uh, well, that, that, that's what we hope for. I, mean, I believe the numbers are that if everyone pledged at the book level, we'd need about 450 people to do that. Um, obviously, you know, that varies as people have different, you know, takes on it or people pledge at the higher levels or not. Uh, what we're going to start to do as well, uh, in another non-monetary sense, is get people to pick up. We did this thing last time where you can either get, you, you can get yourself as a character into the book for a certain pledge level. So I believe that um, getting up to £150, you can get uh, yourself in the book as your favourite toy as a character, you know, who's in conversation or in the background. So three people did that last time, which was incredibly cool and helpful. Um, but uh, you know, not everybody gets to be able to afford to do that. So what we're going to run is our own Build-A-Bear scheme. Ah! Starting, uh, I believe it's tomorrow or Saturday, you're going to be able to pick from, uh, the first one, you'll be able to pick from a roster of heads. So there'll be a teddy bear, uh, a Barbie, a toy soldier, and then uh, an action man uh, sort of toy. And, uh, you know, if you share it around, uh, message me with what you like, I'll, you know, tot up the amount of likes, shares, and uh, otherwise, you know, comments and various things like that. And whatever the prevailing choice is will go with that head. And then a week after that, it will be a torso and then a set of legs and, uh, you know, arms. So by the end of it, we have this mishmash character that's going to appear in the book somewhere. Cool. Where all of the backers and people who share around will have been able to together build a character for the book. Yeah, I remember getting a Build-A-Bear thing for my, uh, for my niece, um a good couple of years ago now. She's 13 now. She's, you know, 13 going on 30. And she was about, <laughs> she was about eight at this point. So she'd still appreciate a build of air at eight. 
Well, hopefully, maybe we can get uh, people to appreciate Build a Bear, you know, in their you know, their twenties, thirties, and upwards with this particular scheme. But um, yeah, it was things like that when you're thinking about marketing ideas for this particular thing, it's such a rich world. You knew immediately what Build a Bear was, and I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of people will do too. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I, I'd never actually heard of it until a few years ago when my uh, my sister suggested I get 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 one for my niece. So you know, those show. And um, you know, we used to uh, we used to run their adverts on the website a long time ago as well. So. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. But they never made us any money, so we stopped. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they have evidently lost out. Mm. They have lost out. I don't even know where the nearest one to me is. Well, I think the nearest one to me, well, I'm not I'm not sure if it's still there, but it was in the Trafford Centre. All right. Okay. Cool. Which is where I got. Got my niece's uh, thing from. Mm. Yeah, you know, it sounds like you got some really, really cool stuff going on there in, in terms of the uh, in terms in terms of the, the, the stuff for pledges, and I really like that build a bear idea. I think that's cool. Well, thank you. I think once you you get on Kickstarter, too many people um, that I've seen just let things run. Uh, I think you've got to engage your audience and uh, you know get into come with you on the journey of it in, in any way that you can, you know, you know, make it personal to any, anybody who's involved or you know, even the people that can't afford to come with it. That seems to be the, the, the case for success. I think it was Comics Tribe a couple of years ago. Um, it, it wasn't Oxymoron. It was another one of their books about a bunch of superheroes gaming the system in uh, Las Vegas. And I wish I could remember what it's called. Um, but the, the guy who ran that for them uh, because he was so good at art he could keep offering your know, various sketch rewards to people and be sort of reactive to uh, people who were sending in messages or you know what particular kinds of rewards were popular and I think that he did that influenced me far more than anything else in current these campaigns and you've got to you've got to make it live it can't just be a page that sits there and tots up a number it's for you to go out and sort of like you know tell your story to people. Mm-hmm. Even if you haven't got the book ready, you've got to be able to tell them or show them something. You've got to keep hitting it. Yeah, you do. Yeah, so it's like um, I've seen some I've seen some absolutely fantastic ideas pop up on Kickstarter and never get funded. Mm. And um, I'm not sure why on some on some occasions, because uh, there, there was one there was one guy that I was looking to try and get an animated film funded based on his books. Um which were in Koo Books, still kind of like a steampunk adventure sort of thing. And oh, cool. He never got funded. He, he never got funded. I'm really um, surprised. Although sometimes it can have to, it, it can be dark things, like just the time of year mm-hmm. you decide to run it on. We've had a little bit more of an uphill time this time around, I think, because... Now, I'd started on Free Comic Book Day because I assumed that it would, uh, it would be the ideal opportunity to have a lot of walk-by and a lot of people coming round, but it actually pulls focus for what you're trying to do because everyone's evidently focused on the big two by that point. And it is obviously the UK election now, so a lot of coverage has been dedicated to that. So, say, local newspapers and radio have been working on the election build-up as opposed to any of these other stories. And I've got something coming up in the next week or so, but this first week, you know, it's all fallen on a time where a lot of been focus has been elsewhere for a lot of people. So I think you have to be, when you start these campaigns, you really have to be very focused on finding sort of a gap where 
people aren't on summer holidays or it's not Easter for a lot of kids or you know, people aren't otherwise occupied. Yeah, and you've also got the fact that the uh, the royal baby was born on Saturday as well, you know, was Yeah, but unfortunately on there's no, nothing you can do that. Sometimes it's just, it's, it's damn bad luck. Because I... You know, people who have you know, had a campaign go quite badly, they sort of readjusted the terms with it, set it running again, and then for, you know, the, the reasons of either timing or they've just found a sort of sweet spot with the rewards or the level or the presentation, they've, they've got it right that second time round. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a tricky thing, as you say. It's not not an easy thing to do. No, and it's not always down to. Uh, I mean, a good deal of it is knowledge, but it's sometimes it's just down to pure dumb luck and timing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so obviously, um, you, you're you're obviously as big a geek as I am. <laughs> with, with the uh, I like to think so. with the comics and stuff like that. Um, have you seen Avengers: Age of, Age of Ultron yet? Ah, now, this is, this is a really terrible thing. I have seen a cam of it. I haven't had the money to, uh, or necessarily the time to actually go out and uh, watch it in the full screen. I think I've got the appreciation for it, though. Um, I, 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 I really liked it. I know that some people had a problem with it. What was your take on it? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was better than the first one. I, mm. I, I, felt, I felt as a story it made more sense than the first one. Because in the first one, you were just kind of like thrown in with the characters and you were expected to know who the Chitane were, you know, the aliens. Um, now, people that don't read the comics don't know who those aliens are. And it was never explained, they were just really there in the first one for cannon fodder. Whereas I think... Exactly. I think structurally, this, this one as a story made a lot more sense and was more... more um, I feel it's more accessible to the uh, non-comic book fan as well as a comic book fan. Yeah, and maybe that, I don't know whether it's exactly that that upset a few more people, but it was definitely more of its own thing. I think possibly, even though Joss Whedon uh, made a great big stink about uh, you know how much... Uh, how much more difficult this one was for him. Now, I'm not sure if that was just down to the, the, the intricacies of the production or it, interference from you know, Marvel executives and staff in general. But I think, I don't know, this was almost more Joss's film than the, the, the first one. He got a lot of meat in there that I wouldn't have thought you'd normally get into a kid's film even just philosophically speaking mm-hmm. to the point where I honestly think that you know whilst people have warm and fuzzy memories of the first Avengers movie this second one is going to be the one that uh, you know people come to seeing it now being younger will come back to it and it will grow with them on repeated viewings as they kind of you know progress and get older it's going to be one that sticks I think a bit like the Empire Strikes Back was with Star Wars. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. People say Empire's their first film because it, it is a bit more, it deals with a, uh, a bit more weighty things than the first one. The first one's a fun romp. It is. It's set to tone and you've got to have it there, but Empire's the one that's got some real heft to it, mm. you know, some actual things happening. And the last one's a fun romp as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, even though you can't exactly call Luke Skywalker having to murder his, you know, having to kill his father, a fun wrong, but you know. <laughs> no, no. Um, the third one is good. Uh, I'll always remember it fondly, but uh, you know, I think a lot of people uh, talk about Empire with a certain amount of verve uh, and fondness because, I mean, possibly because um, as kids, 
you know, is their first foray into anything with some, you know, any kind of fiction or film fiction with some decent bite to it. You know, it didn't pander day or it didn't play down to them in any way. You know, they were allowed to come on what was an adventure for everybody. And Avengers was, the first Avengers was fun and did do that to some extent, but I think this one fully, fully goes there. Yeah. And just uh, Jake Spader, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, you know, so I read a comment on Facebook from somebody saying, you know, saying that James Spader um, is to the Avengers um, what Ricardo Montalban as Khan was to Star Trek too. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and, yeah, and I uh, thought, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, even through the layers of CGI, his performance is so deeply him um, that I. I, I if you had just a non-captured CG character and it was just his voice, it would not have worked in the slightest. You had to have him there, uh, animated behind the voice. Just as, ironically, you had Andy Serkis in that film, and I can't imagine Andy Serkis just doing the mocap or the voice uh, of God and Lord of the Rings. You had to, had to have him live action in there at some point in the trilogy mm-hmm. because his performance was so integral. Yeah. Um... Okay, well, um, is there anything else you've got you've got in the works um, other than Tarso Bear, or is it is, is Tarso Bear the only only thing that you're working on at the moment? Uh, it's certainly the only thing that I've got any f- in my direct focus on at the moment um, for reasons of sanity and also because uh, the, the series I was doing before that, The Veil, I'd uh, managed to knock out. I think it's five issues now. Um, so you know, there's enough sitting there that I can afford to take some time away. And, and do this for a little while. I was actually talking to some guys from Michigan last night on another podcast um, about the veil and the fact that one of their friends had picked it up and taken it to them. And it's interesting that um, you can write something, you know, quite broad like Torso Bear um, with themes that everyone understands because it's in that certain cultural lexicon. But the, the veil is so rooted in sort of the London area and uh, the Ellsbury Vale area mode of speaking, the sort of, um, I hate using the word, but you'll know what I mean when I say chav speak, sort of thing, that as you can imagine anybody from Detroit trying to read that, who might as well be trying to read an alien language. They obviously just don't get any of the gags or anything to do with it. But it's fun to write that sort of stuff. It's fun to write things that are around you, but you know, um, as I I certainly know, that uh, the veil is only for a very specific, small, local audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's not like um, I go thought bubble every now and again. I'm hoping to get there this year, actually, because um, I might go in thought bubble in Leeds. Um, I'm not sure, are you going to be out of one? Oh, definitely. Um, Andy Clift, who writes and draws, uh, Bertie Bear and I have got a uh, table sorted out between us. Okay, well, that's all the more that reason. definitely going to be there. That is all the more reason for me to try and get to it this year. Um, well, I, I I go to it every now and again, and um, you know I, I pick up a few indie comics when there, and um, don't don't always necessarily read them all, but the ones that I have managed to get round to reading have been pretty good. So there's you know there's a lot of good stuff out there. There is there's an enormous amount of talent. I mean, obviously you know about Sidith and, and uh, his work just always flies off the shelves at those shows, um, but there's just such an enormous amount. Of really original and uh, really quite off the wall stuff like um, uh, Seven String, 
for example, you know, Heavenly Court, those guys do uh, uh, an anime uh, sort of pastiche uh, thing with music that is, it is remarkable um, that you go there and there are ideas that you've never seen before in comics and uh, you would never have thought of yourself in a million years. It's amazing to see what people come up with. And I think that's probably why I haven't bought a DC book in a while. Because people, are, whenever I go to these shows, I have to pick up something uh, from the indie community. And it's always far more uh, unique than well, anything that I've come across elsewhere. Well, I, I mean, up, maybe image books are doing that now. but Yeah, one, one I picked up, um, the last one I went to, which wasn't last year, it was the year before, I picked up Moon with, with, the, work, with the artwork by Steve Pugh. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's I picked really up the first great. two issues of that, and I thought, "Wow, I want more." I don't know if issue three has been released yet, or if he's even done, if, if they've even done an issue three. But the first two issue issues of that were fantastic, and um, I think the premise was um, during the day, the moon, the, the moon's day job is he, he's a detective. <laughs> yeah, and uh, understandably, you know, it, it, it sells really well. The guys. Uh, really well known at all the shows that were there at the last Thought Bubble I was at I was at Dean Con in Kent earlier this year and the guys from Moon were down there as well um, uh, their books are fantastic they look amazing uh, and it's such a well put together package that I'm genuinely surprised that they're still indie mm. but then maybe they'll be like the Twisted Dark guys the T-Pub guys in a few years if they build up their audience enough they'll just go into business with the Diamond themselves and get distribution that way. Oh, they deserve not. it. They definitely deserve it. They might. They might even end up doing a doing a similar thing to the uh, to the two guys that created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in the eighties. Oh, they have their own label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. they totally ought to do that. I, th- I think if anything, we need to have that because one of the story was that um, uh, you know the Ninja Turtles, and um, once they built up a bit of an audience, uh, were actually selling more week to week than the Avengers were. Um, there's a wonderful documentary on Netflix about that sort of thing and I, I've, I've taken the same list recently with people asking about Torso Bear and some of these other you know, indie comics that seem a bit off the wall to them and so you know, Ninja Turtles themselves I can imagine Laird and Eastman at their first show trying to sell it to a bunch of kids and them looking at them as if they were insane mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny um, because you mentioned the documentary. I've seen it on. I've, I've actually seen that documentary, um, so I kind of watched it as research because um, um, a couple of shows ago we interviewed um, Andrew Farago, um, oh, really? who actually wrote uh, the, the the complete visual guide to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've seen a few posts about that. That's that's incredible. So you know, he, he he's one he's one of our. You know, one, one of our most recent guests on the show. So that, that's an amazing, uh, amazing win to get him on there because uh, he, he really knows his stuff, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's always amazing to have passionate people like that on there who don't necessarily have started up the books themselves, but you know, really can sort of uh, provide you with an education on it. And as silly as it may sound, some these things kind of are important because they become sort of a cultural lexicon. Even to the point where you know Alan Moore's books are inspiring political movements around the world, and, and yet sometimes the graphic medium still doesn't get the credence it deserves as a genuine cultural force. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, 
Uh, Brett, it's been great having you on the show, um, and um, you know, so like, um, do you want do you want to give a quick plug to the uh, to the link for the, um, for the for the Kickstarter campaign? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the Torso Bear um, All Stitched Up campaign is currently running on Kickstarter. It will be until the first of June. If you just go to uh, Kickstarter and tap in Torso Bear, all one word, you'll be able to find it uh, come up. Uh, either that or go to torsobear.com which is the official blog and website and we'll have lots of links to daily sketch winners um, you know, original art that you can win from there and uh, you know, other things like updates on the uh, sample PDF which will happen every time we hit something like 25% or 50% funding and upwards from there cool. and lots more free stuff coming out day to day so keep your eyes peeled ok well thanks for, thanks for joining me on the show it's been great having you it's been a real genuine pleasure to talk to you, Ian. This is Mark Wade. Hi, this is Amanda Tapping. Hello, I'm Steve Pugh. And you can catch them all right here on SFP Now. And that's about it for this week. Uh, hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, next time we're going to have a fantastic interview coming up with uh, the actor that plays uh, Sleepy um, from Once Upon a Time. Um, so, you know, tune in for that. Bye for now.